what's up, everybody? Welcome to Screen Geeks Radio, episode 150. That's right, we made it to 150 episodes. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. Anyhow, this is Dave. This is Barry. This is... <laughs> Ethan. <laughs> well... I'm glad we're bringing our 150th episode with a great deal of dignity. Absolutely. All the dignity that it deserves. At least our to- our topic's dignified, at least. I, I would so say so. That. Yeah. Yes, yes. Before we can get into our topic talking about Sir Terrence Malick, uh, let's talk about what we watched this week. Uh, Barry, why don't you kick us off? Uh, well, I can't talk about the two movies I saw this <laughs> week, which are uh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life and Submarine. Love to talk about it, but I can't. Um, I can talk about Lenny, the um, the Bob Fosse film starring Dustin Hoffman and Valerie Perrine about the comic um, Lenny Bruce. Um, Fosse's style runs hot and cold for me. Um, he makes some great editing choices and he makes some really pretentious editing choices. Um, and pretentious not in a complimentary way but in a way that I feel is like kind of jarring and showing attention to itself and kind of taking you out of the movie occasionally. But he also does some wonderful things. And for me, Lenny is kind of hit and miss. Um, I thought Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman's performance is dynamic and remarkable, and Valerie Pine is terrific. Um, if you're a fan of Lenny Bruce or you know interested in in, in really the, the the mark that he left on stand up comics worldwide, I mean it's it is a good film. It's very good. It's all it's entirely in black and white, um, but it's it's limited by its subject matter. It doesn't quite get completely under the skin of Lenny Bruce as much as it tries, uh, but it is worth seeing because because Hoffman is just remarkable. I finally did get around to seeing Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. Finally, wonderful film, wonderful. Loved every minute of it. Um, Yay! Yeah, I can't say I can't think of anything about this movie I didn't like. I thought it was just fantastic. One of Jarmusch's best. It just just full of surprises. It has its own cool groove the whole way through. Let's all do it together. Ice creamer. Let's all do it together. Ice creamer. Ice creamer. You screamer. Yes. We all screamer. For. Okay. <laughs> wow. Hey, this would really help if you'd seen the movie. It, it probably would have, <laughs> yes. It probably would have helped a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, Roberto Benini, like, what a surprise. Like, for me, he was like the wild card because, um, you know, I'm one of those Yankees who I've seen, I've seen, you know, like some of his lesser American films, like the Pink Panther sequel he was in and uh, Pinocchio and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, I forget that he can be so wonderful, especially when it's his own, in his own language and he's just oh, wonderful in the movie. And Ellen Barkin, man, she just knocks the, the wall off in the opening scene. Just great stuff. Uh, and last two, uh, I saw Stone, which is a crushing disappointment. This is with Robert De Niro, Edward Norton, and Mila Jovovich. And Mila Jovovich acts circles around her two co-stars. No. Because, well, you know, it's not because they're not good actors. They're magnificent actors. But De Niro, this is another one of those roles where De Niro just doesn't connect with the character. But the character isn't very good. It's really one note. And Norton is acting with a capital A. It's a very mannered performance. He has the same intonation it's just a very limited performance, and I don't know if he felt that he needed to go full method with De Niro, but the two kind of cancel each other out. It's, hmm. it's, it's. I'd say next to the Italian job, it's one of the least essential Edward Norton performances. You know, and again, I don't mean that as an insult. He's a, he's a terrific actor. I love Edward Norton, but this is just not one of his best films. But Miller Would Jovovich, uh, Deftis Smoochie be uh, vintage <laughs> Norton? I I got no problem with Deftis Smoochie. It's certainly in terms of the actors. Uh, I think tone is a problem with that movie. But I I liked I liked Norton's performance in that movie actually a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
but uh, Mila Jovovich is great in Stone. Um, she's basically playing this femme fatale, and she's just solid. But the movie doesn't know if it wants to be a character study or neo-film noir or what it is. And at the end of the film, I found it, it was kind of like closing your fist on, on, on air. There, just, there was just nothing, nothing there. Hmm. And uh, finally, I saw um, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is a beautiful film. It definitely is worth seeing in 3D. It really does add a great deal of texture. After a while, I, f- I forgot I was looking at a flat screen because the 3D does seem – I mean, it really does what uh, what Avatar did in, in the most respectful sense. It really does, I thought, add dimension to what you're looking at, adding a depth of field. And, and this is the kind of film where you really do want that. Um, Herzog's narration does get a little campy at times. I think I think even he's starting to realize, like, I don't know. I think I think he's starting to kind of like have a little too much fun with his narration and some some of the word choices. Like he he makes a reference to Baywatch at one point. Yeah, so I think he's having a little too much fun with his narration. I think he's starting to become familiar with how familiar his narration is. But it, all the same, I mean, if you love Herzog's films, and this is no exception, it's a beautiful film. Definitely see Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And that's it for me. Right on. Ethan, what have you been watching, sir? Uh, I watched Something Wild, which just recently came out on Criterion. Yes. I I quite enjoyed this movie a great deal, even though the last act of it is very disturbing and frightening, unlike the very comedic first two acts. Yes. (laughs) But, uh, again, it's just, I've really realized with this movie how much I do love Jonathan Demme, because, like, Silence of the Lambs, Stop Making Sense, Rachel Getting Married, this, he's... He's uh he's up there on my list for me, my my, my personal list of cool people. Right on. Yeah, I agree with you. Something wild, I think is, I go back and forth between um, that and Blue Velvet, but I think Something Wild might be my favorite film in 1986. I just I love this movie, and for the same reasons you mentioned, I mean, it's so unpredictable. You, you I mean you would never guess where it's going, and the the key performances of Jeff Daniels, Melanie Griffith, and Ray Liotta are just perfect. Love that movie. Yeah. Um, I next watched a film from a director I'm very embarrassed to, ne- I to say I'd never seen a film from before and why this is incredibly embarrassing is because he's from my hometown <laughs> but uh, I finally I watched uh, Brand Upon the Grain the, sorry I said the grain Brand Upon the Brain by uh, Guy Madden the uh, experimental filmmaker from Winnipeg, Manitoba yes I've heard of Guy and, Madden yeah he um, let's see yeah. I've seen a few what have I seen of his did he do Dracula, the, the, the Dracula hey, Silent Film? Virgin's Diary? Yes, I've seen that. And yes, then, he, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I did uh, Saddest Music in the World. That's the uh, other one, yes. My okay. Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this is, uh, like him, he's known for his uh, love of silent films, and this is like a silent film, except it has a narration by Isabella Rossellini, and it's about, basically, it's kind of like an autobiographical film, but but him kind of taking his childhood and making it to like fantasy and horror and science fiction and a silent film and about his relationship with his mother. And, uh, as I said, it, it very, it switches genres. It's, it's in fact, it's many genres at once. And, uh, it's pretty, just the visual storytelling of it is amazing as a silent film. But also at first I thought the narration, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if this is working, but Towards the end, when you realize how chaotic the movie is overall, it kind of works. So mm-hmm. I definitely recommend that. It's on uh, Criterion, in fact. So great, great. Check it out. Uh, next, uh, I rewatched The Hangover for the first time since the theater, and uh, you know, it's still pretty funny. I mean, I think definitely the best thing about it is the structure of it and Zach Galifianakis. Mm. Yeah. 
So, yeah, nothing really new to say on that. It's still still pretty good. Um, I watched uh, Tommy for the first time. Tommy, can you hear right. me? Yeah, it was funny. It was interesting watching and thinking how much it has in common with uh, The Wall, because it's like a rock opera by a popular 70s band, British band, that has it starts out about a young boy whose dad dies in World War Two and the issues that arise from that. Yeah. But I think the difference between this and the wall, and obviously the visuals in this movie are pretty amazing. It's Ken Russell. But I think just the big difference in the movie comes down to the music. I think like the music in the wall is way better. Like I think some like when it's kind of the who being the who, I think it's good, but kinda of when it's like them actually singing what they're doing, it's kinda of, eh. But it's pretty good to, overall. Um, next, I watched the first time ever uh, Last Tango in Paris. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Bertolucci. Yeah, that was a, an interesting watch. <laughs> yeah, Butter is never the same after that movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, sorry, my uh, parents are... Someone's having shower i'm just gonna leave the room right now okay <laughs> sorry that's okay cut no this problem. out of the show oh no it's staying in <laughs> oh, always makes it better anyway sorry uh next i watched the toy the classic richard donner film oh no with richard pryor, pryor. What, you don't yeah. like this no no oh my gosh oh. well richard donner richard pryor <laughs> and jackie gleason yeah i've seen the toy Do we lose him? Yeah, you don't like it? No, <laughs> no, I'm not a fan of this movie. I think it's very offensive in its concept. Um, and I think that Pryor has a lot of really wonderful little moments I, that he makes work. I but think I think it's the a concept- commentary on Ray. I think it's a. I think it's honestly a commentary on racism, not like actually racist. Don't. That's what I kind of got from it. I I didn't see it that way. No, I I, I thought it was really wrong headed. Um, yeah. I, just the whole notion that he buys him and uses him for his for his entertainment it, it felt really wrong in addition to i didn't think it was very funny either what <laughs> i didn't like it when Pryor went into the river and all of a sudden they use the fast motion and he has you know all the the, the bites from the piranhas and, no i i did not there's like this line this that made me laugh really hard where um after he's kind of run away at first he's like i I don't want to do this. And then Ned Beatty comes and he gives him like a $10,000 check. And he's like, oh, he's like, he's like so happy. He's like, oh, me and my wife were just about to make love. You can join if you want. That made me like die. Why don't you like all the good Richard Pryor movies like this and Superman 3? I like the really, really good Richard Pryor movies like Blue Collar and JoJo Dance of Your Life is Calling. But yeah, you know, I think you named like my two. I think those are my two least favorite Richard Pryor movies. Come to think of it. <laughs> anyway, maybe, maybe I need to revisit the toy. Do I need to revisit this movie? It's on Netflix, well, at least the Canadian Netflix. I don't know. It's on the American ones. Probably. I'll give it a look. I honestly, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I, I've seen it twice, and I, I really didn't like it either time. But uh, it, it has been a while. I'll admit. Okay. Anyway, next, amidst all this nonsense about uh, the end of the world, I'll say at least brought one thing, that it brought to my attention this film called The Rapture. Yeah, yeah. All these people are like, 
oh man, it's gonna be like that movie, The Rapture. And then Edgar Wright's like, man, tomorrow's gonna be like this movie. Posted the trailer. Roger was like, my four star review of The Rapture. It's like <laughs> this movie I never heard of before is now just all over Twitter. I'm like, I've got to check this out, and I did, and I'm very glad I did because this is a pretty insane movie. Yeah, yeah. I, this is a film we can agree about. I love The Rapture. Yeah, I I will I will say that I I think it's it's pretty much unlike any movie I've ever seen on the topic of religion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, so I need to I, see this? Okay. And uh, Mimi Rogers is pretty incredible in it. Yeah, we, uh, Ethan, um, if you could give a brief synopsis of it, because I'll bet there's a lot of listeners who've, who've never seen this film and might, might not have even have heard of it. So if you could tell us just kind of a synopsis. Three words, David Duchovny's abs. <laughs> Sold. Okay. <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, I should. Uh, I should be honest. It's about uh, Mimi Rogers plays this woman who kind of works this boring job, and basically on weekends, her and her uh, partner go out and they they do uh, what's it? The swinging? Yeah, they're swingers. They're a swinger. Yeah. Yeah, they go out, and uh, she kind of you know, just kind of this dull, monotonous lifestyle. But then um, these two like people come, like these two like like kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses, telling you know you gotta god the judgment day is coming and she's like but then she kind of like she like there's this other time she like sees this like tattoo of a pearl and she's like starting to like get obsessed with like god and she eventually she converts to christianity and uh she's like married to david Duchovny, and they have a kid and basically it's like six years later and she's like convinced you know the end is gonna come and i don't want to say what happens from there but it's pretty insane it really is. I love this film because it takes it takes itself completely seriously, um, and uh, it, yeah, it, it, again, without just like Ethan said, without giving anything away. I mean, this movie goes as far as it needs to go, and as far as you're afraid it will go. Um, this movie is fearless, absolutely fearless. Mimi Rogers, um, you know, probably what best known for the what Ridley Scott movies, something someone to watch over me or being the mother in Lost in Space. She never really got all the credit she deserves as an actress and her performance in this movie I think is just startling. David Duchovny is very good. Um, all the performances I think this in this movie are great. It's just it's a very intense movie and it was done on a very low budget. This is Michael Tolkien who also wrote The Player. Um, and it just in terms of just being a completely uncompromised movie and being a movie that and in some ways respects religion but also really digs into uncomfortable material and really really dissects religion and the notion of salvation and the notion of what our relationship with god is and what it can be um this movie is pretty top notch um it's i would say for adventurous film goers and certainly if you're a christian listening to this i'd say if you're adventurous and if you're up for something really different and challenging this is also a good film um i think um, is it as good as the left behind movies Imagine Dogma as a serious movie, a serious Ooh, film, not a okay. comedy with a poop monster, but imagine Dogma with all its serious intonations about, about Catholicism and Christianity and God and Jesus and religion. Imagine that as a serious film. I would say this is the movie. Okay. All so. right. So so it, it, it leaves left behind the Thief in the Night movies. Just yes. kind of put those off to the side. It should, well, not, I mean, not only is it, I mean, it just, it does all this completely straight faced and it, and it does suggest like, well, what if all of this is completely true? And I think that's one thing that, that creeped a few people out uh, yesterday, because yesterday, you know, I know this show is going to go on a little bit later, but yesterday, of course, was May 21st, and there were a lot of people worldwide, you know, who were going like, well, what if, what if that crazy guy is true? You know, and of course, like, 
I think most people, certainly Dave and I, were going like, well, there, there is that verse in the Bible that says no one will know the day or the hour. I mean, God says that. So clearly some guy who like cracked the Bible code isn't smarter than God. But anyway. No, no. He, he, he took points, talking points from the book 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88 and then just kind of reworked him for this day. In any case, man, people were freaked out. I, I don't know. Were so, they? <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll say this real quick. I'm sorry to Bunny Trail, uh, but uh, yesterday I went to King Supers, which is our Colorado shopping mall equivalent over here. Well, grocery um, store. Grocery store. Yeah, grocery store chain. Sorry. And as I was checking out, um, you know, a guy was bagging my groceries for me and, and kind of an old guy in his mid-50s, big old goggle glasses. So this guy at the grocery store, he leans into me and he says, you know, the world's supposed to end today. And like in a little codgely voice, I'm like, yeah, that's what I've heard. He goes, you know, the way I see it, this guy who came up with this theory, he lives on the West Coast, and considering what time it is now, we got 29 minutes till the end of the world. <laughs> and I just smiled and said, well, you know what? God bless you. Have a good day no matter what happens, and hopefully I'll see you tomorrow. He's like, yeah, hopefully. And then I, then I left. Wow. Okay. Anyway, that was my my okay. Well, point well, yeah, of story. Yeah, yeah, that was our rabbit trail. Well, okay, our first rabbit tail trail of the episode because we first tend one. to have a few. Back to you, Ethan. What else have you watched? Yes, in addition to the rapture. <laughs> Last, I watched uh, Thirty Five Shots of Rum by Claire Denis, uh, the filmmaker who brought us uh, Beau Travail and White Material, both excellent films. And this, unlike those two, I've seen are uh, those two are set have kind of a military setting to them, and this is uh, set in urban area of France, and it concerns a. Uh, uh, man and his daughter and kind of their relationship she's kind of grown up in this like really sexy guy is trying to win her over and he's you know kind of just frustrated with his life and it's a very kind of small intimate story but it contains her usual excellent uh, visual style so I quite recommend it Right on. And one last thing I actually wanted to talk about, since I got the, I, at least on the free trial, trial of the Canadian Netflix right now, mm-hmm. is they have all the Saturday Night Live episodes, right? Yeah. And I got to finally see the infamous Tom Green hosted episode of SNL. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I think the thing is with these episodes, I think they're actually kind of edited down, like they cut out a lot, but still, what I saw here was good stuff. So we need to like see the Tom Green episode. Yeah, but like in the monologue, it's like cause he they he tries to set up this running joke to the show that he's gonna marry Drew Barrymore at the end. <laughs> and um, there's this one of the first sketches is they do this one where um, it's him and Will Ferrell dressed as eagles, and they like going ka ka ka, and they go into the audience, and Tom Green just starts like harassing people. He like starts like licking like this one person's head and stuff, <laughs> and him and Will Ferrell end up French kissing. And um, there's this other sketch where it's um, uh, Tom and Lauren in a tub where it's him and uh, Lauren Michaels in a tub drinking juice boxes. The first one's him with like two rubber ducks. He's like, it's amazing. I remember when that episode was on, but I I don't know if I watched it. But I do remember the the running gag about Drew Barrymore. That's great. I'll have to find that one. Yeah. Wow. All right. So that's it for you, sir? Yeah. All right. I only got one movie this week, but then some TV. Um, Thursday, if y'all didn't know, didn't follow us on uh, Facebook or anything, was Josh's birthday. So uh, in tribute, I watched the Grindhouse double feature. Uh, Since I have the Blu-ray, I haven't watched the whole thing in a while. Revisiting it, I've got to say I prefer the the shortened cuts over the the longer Signal releases considerably. Hmm, really? Um, yeah. It really kind of helps with the pacing a lot on Death Proof. I know that you don't get as much time with the second set of girls in the in the, se- in the theatrical cut, but there's no arguing really. The pace is just 
I think it, it, it moves along much better than the direct than the quote unquote director's cut. I mean, I still like it. Don't get me wrong, but it was kind of fun seeing it that way. And I, I definitely was happy to see less Planet Terror. <laughs> it, it's fun, but the joke does kind of wear itself out after a while. Is there a lot of extensive stuff in that? Um, it, it's it's a good little bit, like 15, 20 minutes longer at least. That is a lot for that movie. You're right. Yeah. So, and the trailers. It's so much more fun to see that movie with the trailers intact. Werewolf Women of the SS and Thanksgiving and yeah, fun times. If you have a chance to watch it and you're up for that kind of movie, um, <laughs> I don't think you can go wrong with it. It's a good time, Last especially th- with a group of friends. Oh, definitely. Last time I saw it in its entirety like that was with Josh at uh, Comic-Con. Nice. That's right. You guys got it on pay-per-view. We did. We got it on pay-per-view and watched it and laughed hysterically. Yeah, that was great. Nice. But uh, a quick question. Hobo, and a sh- Hobo with a Shotgun. That was originally a trailer for... The Canadian release, I think. The Canadian release, yeah, because I've been confused about that because I, I've been reading, I haven't seen it yet. It just opened in Denver, and every review I read about it mentions that it was a part of the, the Grindhouse trilogy. And I'm like, no, it wasn't, but apparently, yeah, apparently it was. And I, we just didn't get it over here. Yeah, it was just on the Canadian release, I think. Did you see it when it came out, Ethan? I didn't get the chance to see it in the theater, no. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, from what I understand, that's what happened. Okay. It, it aired somewhere in there. I don't know where. It might have been, I think it was like before Machete or something. Hmm. Wow, like before like machete. First, first thing, yeah. Wow, I don't yeah. remember. I don't don't quote me on that. Uh, well, I'll look yeah. into it. I'll look into it. Yeah, because because I, I would like to see it. Because the reviews for Hobo and a Shotgun are basically like it's disgusting, it's foul, it goes too far, it's ridiculous. You'll love it. <laughs> All right, so then. I want to see it. Okay, cool. Right on. Um, I haven't watched this week's Doctor Who yet, but I watched last week's, and last week's is worth noting, mostly because Neil Gaiman wrote it. Oh wow! And bringing his, he, I think he's one of the finest fantasy writers we have today, easily. And in this episode, you actually get to meet the TARDIS. The TARDIS' soul is taken out and put into a body, and the play between the, the the TARDIS and the Doctor is freaking hilarious. That's so cool. The episode has a ton of heart. It's just, it's it's a wonderful episode. That's really the only way I can put it. And especially the nickname that he gives the TARDIS when she says it later is is, is worth the payoff by itself. Uh, let's see, what else? We've been catching up on South Park. This season didn't start off with the strongest, I don't think, with the Human Centipede episode. But it's built up a lot of momentum. I agree with you. It gets better and better, funnier and funnier, and all these episodes that are focusing on character and the jokes and not simply just trying to go for the, the gag reflex moments. Yeah. yeah. I saw the uh, Funny Butt episode, and I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one, too. Yeah. The Tyler Perry episode. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's all everybody talks about, but uh, it is pretty wonderful. <laughs> Token keeps giving him his money. No he keeps what, laughing. He's like, no <laughs> matter what. Oh, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the way he says it. He's just like, man, I know I shouldn't like this guy, but I do. And then uh, this week's episode with everyone being angry and, and why. Yeah. I'm just going to leave Wonderful, it wonderful. It opened up so well. It was such a, it's such a funny, just it's such a simple joke about misunderstanding with the boys looking at the chart and going, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe that's up there. I love that. Like, Great setup. Yeah, good stuff. And then what the, the I think the best turn was when Randy came in to try to straighten everyone out. Yes. And instead of saying, hey kids, no, it's not a big deal. It's here's the mathematical equation for your true penis size. I was just like, really? You went there? <laughs> Yeah, that was a fine episode. Uh, and then the season finale for Supernatural happened this weekend on Friday, and I will say I was underwhelmed. Um, mm. I'm Like I said before, this season's been a lot of fun. There have been a lot of great episodes, but the quote-unquote season arc has had maybe three or four episodes total you know, dedicated to it out of 22. So it just kind of felt very tacked on, and mm. the ending, you just kind of go, really? That's where you're going with this? I'm, I'm a little doubtful about next season, but I'll definitely tune in anyway. 
Uh, yeah, it's just a bit of a disappointment. So that's pretty much all I watched um, outside of stuff for this episode and one of our this week's releases. So l- let's get into that. What what came out this week, sir? What came out? Oh, no, let me let me say really really quick. Um, I did see the season finale of The Office. I should mention really really briefly uh, just because there was a lot of to do about it and apparently uh, Ricky Gervais expressed some uh, some some dis uh, not completely satisfied with it. Um, and I thought the show is going in a really interesting direction, which I like, and it's unpredictable. Um, I think a lot of fans were unhappy with it because it, it didn't, didn't resolve anything. There's no okay. new boss currently. There's all these options, but the movie didn't really the movie the, the show didn't pick any. Um, but anyway, it's going in some really fun directions, some solid laughs. But I think a lot of people were dissatisfied because it, it is such an open ended season finale as opposed to being like okay, and this is who your new boss is next semester. But we'll see. Yeah. In theaters this week, uh, Dave and I saw, the, uh, I believe it's the number one movie in America currently, uh, oh, Pirates <sighs> Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides with Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush and Penelope Cruz and a lot of other really talented people who should know better. In limited release, you've got Woody Allen's new film, critically acclaimed, by the way, opened up uh, the Cannes Film Festival this year, got terrific reviews. Owen Wilson, Rachel McAdams in Midnight in Paris. Supposed to be a wonderful film. And that's it. <sighs> Did you see Pirates, Ethan? I have self-respect, Dave. Good for you. Good for you. <sighs> this movie. What does that say about it's, it, You us? know, this isn't the worst movie I've seen this year, though. No, 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 no. It's just, it's just, it's a nothing movie. Um, I mean, we were talking about it. Like, for me, like, the summer movies I can't talk about notwithstanding, the summer really hasn't started, you know? <laughs> um, like, you know, That's for me. That's going to kill you later. I'm just telling you. I know. I should say really quick, like, like what's it like not being, what's it like seeing the tree of life and not being able to talk about it it's like going to the prom dave and you go to the prom and you realize that your your blind date for the prom is carla gugino and you're at the prom with her and you both win prom king and queen and afterwards she takes you on a ride in her ferrari and afterwards she pulls over the ferrari and all sorts of unspeakable things happen and at the end of the night she goes barry don't remember you can't tell anyone (laughs) it's pretty funny to say this because just as you talked about this the tree of life just won the palm dior Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Of course, I don't think Malik's there, so. Oh, well, no. No. <laughs> wow. Thank God. That's great. That's the best news I've heard all morning. Great. Okay. Wow. Sorry. That's okay. Anyway, we were talking about well, something. Here, here's the thing. We were talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, but the reason why it <laughs> yeah. came, came back to Tree of Life was it screened that morning, and every single critic who I was sitting around, that's all you guys could talk about was Tree of Life. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I apologize for that. Yeah, oh, no, no. It's Dave was caught in the crossfires because uh, I saw you uh, after the screening, and I'm going to be very careful about this in case they are listening. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, and I told Dave what I thought about the film. And sure enough, I'm sitting next to Robert Dennerstein, who's one of my favorite people, as well as one of my favorite movie critics. And and he and I were talking about it not only because we were we had so much to talk about, because we were so starved to talk about it. Because you know, it's like this big secret thing. We're not allowed to talk about it until June the 10th. But that's that's how long the uh, the what do you call it the, uh, the embargo. embargo. That's that stupid word. And it's like. Why can't the embargo is for like Transformers three or Thor or something that's like well we could just like sit on this movie for like weeks and weeks as opposed to something like you know well as soon as Brian from the Daily Blam dot com sat down next to you 
what'd you think about it? And you guys start talking about it. Yeah, it's like, well, how can we not talk about something that, that affected us that much, you know, without revealing what we thought about it? Okay, so movie. Pirates. Pirates so, of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. We're stuck talking tides. about this. Yeah, just like, well, like, I, I mentioned Thor because I, I didn't get to talk about Thor, and I'm not going to talk about Thor to, to any extent other than say, like, I thought Thor was a fun but completely ridiculous children's film. It was a kiddie movie, like, more so than the most comic book movies. And, and for me, uh, Pirates was less interesting than that. It, I thought the performances were less memorable, if mm-hmm. that's possible. I thought the action didn't really stay with me. The special effects, I didn't even know there were any. The 3D, I thought all it did was make the movie look darker. Although it had yeah. a few jump moments, but for the most part, it just made a murky movie look even murkier. And every few minutes, you got a sword sticking out at you. Yeah. Very poorly, I might add. Yeah, you know, and then it has like that, it has two twist endings, both of, of the Who Cares variety. And then, like, I've told you, like, like Penelope Cruz, like, I got to give her a lot of love because whenever she does a movie for Elmo Devar, she's sensational. Whenever she does a movie in America, she's just the sexy chick with the accent. After I posted my review, I totally realized that I completely forgot to even mention she was in the movie. I know. And it's just, it's that kind of performance. Like, anybody could have played that part. And I mentioned, like, Megan Fox, but it's that kind of role. It's the hot babe with the sword role. Yeah. So, I, oh, man. It, yeah. They learned some lessons from the last two movies. Instead of stretching a movie, a story out into two movies equaling five and a half hours, they made it one movie that's a shade over two hours, which still I think was about 20 minutes too long easily. And they cut back on the CG and made it more in service to the story as opposed to making the story fit around the CG. All that said, that's all they got right, I think. Uh, There's a scene with the carriage chase at the beginning. I know we've talked about that. I think it's oddly appropriate considering just it, it's such a convoluted chase that's just executed so well, considering how convoluted everyone's motives were beforehand for the first half hour before that, that wasn't executed well. It just kind of pro- provided a nice point counterpoint. And the movie's just completely and totally unforgettable. There is no reason for the characters to do what they're doing. I mean, I, I created, I, I did the, uh, the comparison to Ocean's Eleven, where the first movie was great, and then Ocean's Twelve, there's no real reason for them to even make that movie. Ooh, well, A, we know how much Ethan liked that one, and B, I got to defend Ocean's 12 over Pirates 4, because I, th- I no, think... No, 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 I no. think Pirates 4 is a much weaker film than Ocean's It is, 12. it is, but what I'm saying is that they, they there was a, there's a significant dip, dip, I think, in the quality of Ocean's 12, and when they went to doing Ocean's 13, it was, we have to have a reason for these characters to get back together, a legitimate reason, so sure. someone hurt Ruben, which gave them all the reason to unite and get together and just, you know, take it to this guy. Mm-hmm. There's no unifying anything in this movie at all whatsoever. You know what struck me too, Dave, watching is like the music by Hans Zimmer is so exciting, but the movie isn't exciting. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it's, it, there's, you, you know, like I, I thought like take away the music and it, which is, it's just a bunch of choreography and it's scenes that don't really mean anything. And, and it's Johnny Depp using words like savvy because he knows people in the audience are going to go, yeah, savvy, woo. But this is this is not the thrill is gone. They, you they, brought they, up the music. You they, know what I'm going to say next because you brought up the music for this thing. When they get to the Fountain of Youth, which actually I liked the idea for how they created the Fountain of Youth. The idea is good. Kind of a cool thing. The idea is good. And yes. I like what the Spanish's goal was. I think that was very inspired because that's not something you expect. But every as soon as they walk in, I'll, shall I say he borrowed heavily from the Fountain score? Yeah, he did. When you get to the Fountain of Youth, it's like let's make it a little more obvious, kids. Come on. He borrows from that. I mean, there's moments from the Goonies he borrows. There's a moment from Splash he borrows. And then, like, the whole climax is the climax of Indiana Jones and the Tem- and the Last Crusade, except with, you know, without the Holy Grail. Now it's the Phantom of Youth, but it's the same idea. Yeah. Uh, you, the, the one straight man that was in this movie, the, the, the missionary, 
was interesting, and he did, but he disappeared for like a half hour at a time. Yeah, and then he falls in love with a mermaid and turns into he he becomes one as you wish away from become from becoming Wesley, from the, the Princess Bride. In right. a bad I thought you guys say he became a merman. That would have been a good touch. That could have happened. I would have liked that. <laughs> no, like honestly, Ethan, like I'm watching, I'm thinking there's so many options. So like they get to the Fountain of Youth, like how about we have like a crazy fight scene where like they keep falling into the Fountain of Youth and every time they get out, they get younger and younger and younger until it's like, you know, a bunch of like seven year olds with like buccaneers and, you know, like like really go crazy and like be a lot of fun. But like I would say it's like the ending of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's like great idea. They get there and they have no idea what to do with it. And it's mm-hmm. just one missed opportunity after another. I, I think the the missionary's ending to the episode to the film his exit from the film is a perfect analogy for the entire movie that's it (laughs) (laughs) the thing i loved about the movie because i thought man they know what they got they just don't know what to do with it is the one scene that johnny depp has with keith richards clearly these two need to have their own movie together they have chemistry it's fun to watch the two of them richards can actually act and depp is clearly loving every minute he gets to share with keith richards if they do another one of these movies and unfortunately they probably will just have it be like last crusade just have it be a father-son movie and who cares what cockamamie adventure they go on just let them have the screen together no more no more of these these stupid side characters let jeffrey rush take a break I will say probably the best part of the screening all night was the guy who was the uh, the, the the impersonator for Jack Sparrow. Yeah, because that guy was good, and he, we saw him at Starfest too. But that, he throws himself into it. He was freaking awesome. Yes. Um, beyond that, you know, I know we're taking a giant dump all over this movie, but I think I still think it's better than the, than Dead Man's Chest and At the End of the World, or whatever uh, at World's End. Whatever at World's End, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't say. I mean, for me, it's as forgettable. You yeah. know, it's, it's as elaborate or a little less, maybe a little less elaborate and big, but uh, it's just nothing special. I mean, it, I, I don't know I don't know if I'd say I'm taking a dump on the film as much. I'm just like, it, it just, it should have been such better. A who, it's a who cares movie. You know, it's, yeah. I don't think it's bad enough to be a bad movie, but it's not good enough to be anything more than merely watchable. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to see it, don't do the 3D. It's no, completely. No, waste of money. It, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. That's, I think we've gone enough. I, I gave it a two out of four and you gave it a two out of five. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I give it the same review you did. I mean, the five star thing is something that, you know, Maui Tang Weekly, they like one out of five stars. So, like, when I give something five stars, it's like, oh, he likes something a lot. You know, and I rarely give something five stars. Although I'll be giving something five stars soon. I can't say what it is, but um, oh well, stay All right. tuned. So we didn't see Midnight in Paris yet. Let's go ahead and talk about what came out. What's coming out on DVD this week? This week, uh, one of the surprise hits of the year, Nomeo and Juliet. And I gotta say, I, I know a few people who really like this film. So apparently, there might be something more to it. Maybe. Maybe not. I am number four, one of the biggest flops of the year. Um, Kids I in the am Hall. Number two. <laughs> yes. Kids in the Hall, Death Comes to Town. This is like the first new Kids in the Hall movie, I think, in... in a long yeah, time. Yeah, because it wasn't Brain Candy. That was like 96, 97. This has been a long time. Yeah. Uh, Transformers, the complete series, the complete animated series. More than meets the eye. Good Indeed. stuff. Yes. Uh, Samurai Champloo. Is this the complete series? It or? is. Wow. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, I love this film. Papillon with uh, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. A little longer than it needs to be, but I got to say, this is this is a terrific film. And Absolutely it's available is. on Blu-ray. That's going to be a good-looking movie. I hope they hope they do it justice. And then uh, Criterion, uh, re-releasing Solaris, one of the great films by Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, it's been called The Thinking Man's 
Uh, well, actually, The Russian Thinking Man's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I completely agree with that. This is a brilliant film. And then Charlie Chaplin's, the uh, first time I think Criterion's ever released this, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Yeah, he, they did Modern Times, and this is the second Chaplin film. And Wonderful. If it's got different extras than the WB set that I've got, I, I'll end up picking it up sooner than later. Hmm. Whenever I get an HDTV, then I'll buy the Criterion for sure, but... I love this movie. Yeah, well, so great good. film. Yes, with uh, he's Finkel, right? Instead of Hitler, it's like it's like it's a uh, Darfui, Darfui. Yeah, the Fui, the Fui. The Fui yeah. <laughs> instead of Darfur. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's go ahead and hit some news. Uh, let's see. Let's get the Tintin trailer out of the way. Did you guys see this? I did. I did as well. There it was. Well, you know, if Robert Zemeckis hadn't made any of his movies, then I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, honestly, I'm like most Yankees. I have not experienced Tintin in any way, shape, or form, so I'm I'm the wrong audience for this film to begin with. And I'm excited that Steven Spielberg has a new movie coming out, as always, but uh, I... Versus uh, Martin Scorsese's Hugo Cabret, which is coming out around the same time this fall, I'm really excited about that because that's one of the best one of the best children's books I've ever read, and I'm really excited for that one, um, which is also very digital. But uh, this one, I just it doesn't seem like it offers anything we haven't seen before. The way that I see it is, it looks like the kind of of trailer that you'd see when someone's making a trailer saying, "Hey, look at all this stuff that matches up to the source material." Because I didn't really get much out of it. I'm like, okay, there's stuff going on. This is on. what it was like for our wives when they watched the Watchmen trailer. Like, and yes. Well, I should care because. Yeah. What do you think, Ethan? Uh, I noticed that Edgar Wright has a screenplay credit uh, on it. And that's, yeah. that's, that's my positive thing to say about it. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, it's Spielberg. I mean, I know a lot of people have written him off, Dave. But uh, <laughs> I do love Mr. Spielberg. And, uh, and I, I hope... I hope it was worth the many years he's been working on this thing. It's been a long time. All right. <laughs> we're, we're 10 talking about 10, yep. 10. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, Ethan, why don't you go next? Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I, should we just do the con stuff? Can, not con. Yeah, let's can. Can, the con. Cans. The I've, cans I've first heard, of all. I've heard both. Yeah, either or. So I interrupted Barry to say what won the Palme d'Or, so we Yay. know that all already, but... So their highlights include um, Nicholas Winding Refn won Best Director for Drive, Kirsten Dunst won Best Actress for Melancholia, uh, so, uh, some other stuff. Uh, Dardienne Brothers again, they they never leave Cannes without anything. They <laughs> had a tie with the Grand Prix, and uh, that silent film, The Artist, the guy from it won Best Actor. And oh, wow! Yeah, so looks like a decent uh, selection this year. Good year. Well, speaking of con, shall we discuss the poor interesting Lars, thing? Lars von Trier's is, of course, you know, like five miles down the street. What do you think? Is watching he, it in a bar. He's at a pub, e- or eating like, eating a falafel, watching porn on Spectravision on his in his hotel room. Wow, he's probably having a better time than he would at the festival anyway. So, <laughs> really, he's the winner. He definitely got the most attention of anyone, I think, this week. Yeah, although good and bad, because, uh, you know, on one hand, you know, controversy can sell a movie, but in this case, uh, there are a lot of distributors who want to, who are dropping Melancholia. Wow. Should we talk okay, about it? Is, seriously, the controversy over this is one of the most ridiculous things I've oh, ever seen. Oh, no question. Seen. It is ridiculous, you know, and I, I think I could see both sides of it. Um, Christian Toto, who, who's a correspondent for the site and a good friend of Dave and I, he wrote a really good article on it, I thought, on one hand, like, you know, if, if you listen to, like, I sound like Nixon, if you listen to the tapes, if you've listened to the tapes or if you've even watched just the, the entirety of the press conference, I mean, it's pretty clear what happened. 
I mean, there's no mistake. He he thought he was being funny. It didn't work. It, it, you know, he was trying to be ironic and trying to it, continue his. It, this this reminded me exactly of like something like uncurb your enthusiasm when like Larry would make a bad joke, then like someone would like react like we get really pissed off over. It, and the rest of the episode would be him dealing with it. Right. To me, this is exactly like that. Yeah, you know, and Von Trier's. I mean, he loves his reputation as the bad boy of the Cannes Film Festival, and who could blame him? Who wouldn't want that reputation? And, you know, he was clearly trying to take a really dull by-the-numbers press conference and, and, you know, add some spice to it and whatnot. But, no, it was just, you know, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, poor choice of words and just got unfunnier and funnier. But, like, you know, he was clearly trying to be funny. It was, you know, I I, 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 I don't think anybody could take what he said seriously. If you listen to the tape. At first, he's like, there's like this pause where he expects a laugh. Right. He's like... Uh, but well, because Hitler is like uh, G- Germans, and it's like he's more and more trying to like <laughs> digging the hole odd. deeper and deeper. Yeah, just, yeah, it was just bad. I mean, you know, but but you know, and 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 I'll only defend him to to a certain extent because I mean, he had, he has to be responsible for what he says. I mean, he can't just blame it on well, you know, it was it was dull or well, you know, he you know wanted to live up to the question. I mean, he said some he said some stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. Um, but how will this affect his career from now on? I I think so. I think so. There's been so much of a scandal from this. Um, it's either going to die down, or he's, you know, this could, this could be really a problem in the future. Well, I know Melancholia already has a U.S. distributor and release date. So, yes. so we're getting it, but apparently there's some foreign territories where they they actually dropped it out there. And who knows if the? I mean, I hope the Scorsese film is still going to happen. He's going to make a, a sequel to the Five Obstructions yeah, we with about Scorsese. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, I hope that still happens. I, I don't know. We will see. All right. Um, let's see. In good movie news, Keanu Reeves is no longer in Akira. Is Akira still happening? Uh, apparently not so much. A lot of good. stuff got shut down, and it's a movie that doesn't need to be remade into life. Thank action. you. That's exactly why I feel it, it's fine the first time out. If they do it again, it's going to be like Speed Racer. We don't need Akira. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wish, like I wish Josh was here to to defend Speed Racer because he loved that movie, and I I could never get behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Big well, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see what else we got here. We got a picture of Tom Hardy as Bane, showing us nothing. Looks kind of cool. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> Carrie's being remade again. No, this time apparently they're going to go back to the novel and try to remake it closer to the novel. Leave her alone. Carrie was great once. They screwed up the second time with, with the, the rage. Movie. Well, yeah, they did a sequel and then they did a TV movie version of it that was really bad. Yeah. It yeah. was even worse than the Rage Carry too, if you can imagine that. Yeah, so there's yeah. a whole lot of who cares news this week. And my last thing is Army Hammer. Apparently, it has been cast as the Lone Ranger. No, no, I just was, don't care. That was one of those things that, like, I thought they were throwing out. Like, a, you know, they just like kinda, Jack Black being Green Lantern. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, 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 don't, don't do that movie. It's not going to work. The Lone Ranger cannot work in today's context. No, Green Horn is one thing. You can update the Green Horn. You can update the Lone Ranger, even if it's a period piece. It's going to be so silly unless they try to make one of the great westerns. And I, it's so it's like Tarzan. You can't do that today. Fair enough. All right, Ethan. What else have you got, sir? That's all I got. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's next movie has been set up. It's going to be a vampire movie, interestingly <laughs> enough, and it's going to star Tilda Swinton, Michael Fassbender, and Mia Wasikowska. Two of the three just made ha- very happy, and the third one just broke his the brain. The third one just made me sad. But, you know, the, those two are brilliant, brilliant actors, so I, I have faith in Jarmusch. I kind of wonder, like, when he's pitching this, he's, like, pitching a movie, and then he's, like, the distributors are, like, checking their watches, like, uh, and there's vampires in it, and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> now I'm interested." 
This is his first film since The Limits of Control, correct? Yeah, though I think he's actually making a documentary on uh, Iggy and the Stooges right now. But... Oh, cool. Cool. All right. So. Right on. And the last one I had is that Gaspar Noe. He may direct the Brett, Brett Easton Ellis script, The Golden Suicides. Wow. Have you guys read the story about this? Uh, this is like one of the Eston, Brett Easton Ellis books I have not read. It's actually not a book. It's a script he wrote based on a true story. Okay, yeah. It's about like this uh, California couple. They were very like, uh, in the, they were in the artistic community. I think one was like, a, they were both in the visual arts. And they got involved in, like, the Church of Scientology or something, and they committed suicide. And I know, like, Gus Van Sant's producing it. Hmm. Wow. So. That sounds okay. great. But, but Gaspar Noe uh, directing, I, I don't know. <laughs> After Enter the Void, I'm, I'm willing to... Give him a shot. I'm willing to go into... I feel like Hansel and Gretel. I'm willing to go into the witch's house at least one more time. <laughs> one more time you know i i don't want him to throw me in the oven but i i i'm willing to trust the witch one more time i am i'm just thinking because you know basically after you do that like what's next yeah how do you top yourself that was one thing a few film critics and myself were talking about after the tree of life like you know malik has one more movie or one more movie who knows how many movies but he has you know that film with ben affleck and rachel mcadams tentatively titled the burial coming out and and there was um a producer in the film i guess at con they said that the burial completely eclipses the tree of life and tree of life is a mere warm-up i'm like really how do you how can you top the tree of life well i know uh jay hoberman the uh esteemed critic he said he thinks that Melancholia did everything the Tree of Life failed to do. I thought that was an interesting opinion. That is interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to see Melancholia. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, shall we take a quick break? I yes, because I have to pee. Okay. All right. Well, then let's <laughs> take a break yes. so so that Barry so, so that Barry can go if he needs to, and that Ethan goes because he has to, and we'll be back to talk about the films of Terrence Malick, Tree of Life notwithstanding. Greetings! I hope you don't mind. We have a full house at the moment. Everyone is in town for Crypticon. What do you mean you don't know what Crypticon is? It is only the premier horror convention in the Pacific Northwest. May 27th through the 29th. Yes, yes, Uncle Vigor. It is not time yet. You see... He is a big fan of Bill Mosley. Oh, yes. There will be many famous horror people present for Crypticon. If you want to find out more, check out the Crypticon website at www.crypticonseattle.com. No, no, Aunt Taryn. Website, not web, not web. That woman loves her knitting. Hi, this is Nichelle Nichols, and when I'm in this quadrant, I tune in to Screen Geeks Radio. You should, too. 
And we're back. I gotta say that CryptusCon sounds actually pretty cool. Like, like for a second, I thought it was Ethan messing around. I didn't realize you were playing a new commercial. <laughs> that, was, that sounds really cool. We, we might actually have some coverage from it. We'll we'll see how nice. that works out. Yeah, Mark, uh, super fan Mark Smith might be covering it for us. Uh, if he how does, we neat. might have an interview or two or something or something. Says in Seattle, Washington next week, and Bill Mosley is going to be there. That's yeah, great. you know, I should I, let me look up who else is there real quick. I know it's a pretty impressive guest list. Yeah, because uh, I, I love the production values and that 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 commercial. That was so nice. Yeah, because because you know we we only have a, a, a kind of a certain number of commercials we can kind of pull from at the moment but uh, that, that, that was good okay hang on i'm pulling it up here there it is okay Crypticon. let's see who they've got stand uh, by dun, dun, dun. come on if the site loaded faster i'd be good to go all right let's see here it's a good looking site guests let's see yes bill mosley is there uh let's see if there's anyone else i actually recognize in this <laughs> Hold on. Uh, PJ Souls. Oh, my God. PJ Souls. Halloween. And she was also in Stripes, um, as well as Rock and Roll High School. Uh, Linnea Quigley. She's in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, she's in. She's naked in most of her movies. Um, oh, uh, CJ Graham. He was Jason, I think, in the 6th Friday the 13th. Let's see who else we got. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of horror people. Yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, and some of which we're not recognizing now. But, uh, yeah. That's yeah. a pretty solid a big lineup, lineup. So, yeah. Cool, right on. Nice. All right, so Crypticon is coming up next weekend. What are we talking about this week, sir? Today we're talking about the films of Terrence Malick. There it is. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the man hasn't made that many movies. No, he has not. Uh, five as we speak. Yeah, as of going back to 1973. Wow, that's mm-hmm. that's not the, the, the most prolific of, of directors. He takes his time, you know, and uh, once he wraps his mind around something he wants to do, he, he figures it out. And there's a few films that he almost did in between um, Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line. We'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're talking five films, beginning with Badlands, 1974. Which we did cover in a film snob before as well. That's right, we did, we did. This is uh, the fictitious version of what happened in 1958 when Charles Starkweather and his very young girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugit, uh, drove on a very, very long road trip and murdered a lot of people. And they were very, very young at the time. And this was one of those instances that kind of, kind of symbolically meant kind of the end of an era. And it was kind of kind of some people have, have noted that it, it's almost like kind of the the coming of the countercultural era that was was about to come and now that that whole f- very traditional very conservative 50s was about to come to an end but that's just that's, that's all subtext i mean bottom line is um it really was one of the most shocking and horrific serial killing sprees of its time and the film actually even though it is uh it can be a very dark film it's a strangely beautiful film with martin sheen and sissy sissy spacek playing fictitious versions of uh charlie starkweather and caroline fugit um in fact i think his name in the movie is kit and yeah it, it it almost it's it's almost a film of i think very much about the loss of innocence and how uh how this young girl basically has her whole life taken from her by being essentially seduced both visually and and physically by this by this man who uh takes her on this ride in which she uh in which her innocence just kind of withers away from scene to scene um so on one hand it's a serial killer road movie and yet it's one of the most beautiful films ever made the score of course was recycled for uh, tony scott's true romance um this movie just captures the the heartland i think in a really really vivid and visual and beautiful way the way all of malik's films kind of really really make you feel the texture of the time and place they're set in um this is one of my favorite films of his right on one of your favorite of four <laughs> they're, they're or five, all five i guess uh, uh no. well i uh i love this film too it's been a while since i've seen it but uh 
Yeah, I think I think that his narr- the thing is one of the most noted things about uh, Malick is his is his use of narration. Yeah, and I think in his first two films it works much better. Like I mean, it still it still works in his other two, but and I'll have to wait for the fifth one. But I think it here like the uh, yeah the perspective of this girl and how she's like how these horrible things are happening and she's you know talking about it in this way and also there's this lovely music and these lovely visuals as you mentioned are like you said it's taking this very disturbing subject matter but putting it in such like the kind of the way she sees it yeah so yeah and i think less is more with this film because this is of course is around the time of Sam Peckinpah. So no question, Malik could have gotten so much more graphic with the violence than he did. But it, um, when I when I think back to some of those scenes, I do remember basically the point of view of Sissy Spacek's character kind of seeing what's going on in the distance. And, and you know, not in some cases she is aware of the crimes being committed, but she doesn't see them or she just, you know, she basically, you know, is looking at uh, like, for example, closed doors and we hear gunshots go off. Um, and I should say like, you know, we mentioned Carrie earlier. I mean, Sissy Spacek is such a lovely and interesting actress. Uh, between this and like Robert Altman's Three Women, I mean, she's a really wonderful and interesting actress. I think one of the one of the best to come out of the 1970s. And um, you know, now she does some really interesting character work. I mean, she was terrific in David Lynch's The Straight Story, but you don't really see her in roles that are like quite as you know, she uh, her career. She was in hot, she was in Hot Rod. She was in Hot Rod. I stand corrected. I, I, it's like she. She doesn't have the roles like I don't know. It's like it's not like Catherine Deneuve kind of thing, where like her third act is full of roles that are as interesting and as rich as the first and second act. But uh, but no, wonderful, wonderful actress. And of course, her husband Jack Fisk uh, continues to work with Malik. In fact, he worked on Tree of Life with Malik, and they have a daughter, Skylar Fisk, who is in Orange County. But uh, and M- Martin Sheen, of course, we got to talk about Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen is terrific in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's amazing to see how young he is in this film. I think this was uh, about four years before he did Apocalypse Now. Um, but Martin Sheen completely embodies everything that is alluring and sexy and dangerous and disturbing about about this kind of figure. Um, I just I love how the film just it, it never feels like a heavy handed movie. It feels like this film that's that's it's detached and it's almost it's almost from. Sissy Spacek's point of view where you get the sense of wonder and excitement that's going on even as there's these horrible things going on as though you the audience are experiencing what she's experiencing which is that it's not all that's happening is not really going to hit her until much later on in life mm-hmm. and I think it's kind of like that where it, there's almost a safety in the in the detachment that she's feeling and you get to feel that too because again like it's it's a movie about a about a serial killer spree but there is such beauty to it and and it's strange to say this but I mean I think it's one of the most lovely films were made about serial killers uh did, did he use the i don't think he used the same cinematographer on this that he used in uh, days of heaven did he i don't think he used the same cinematographer across all four i was looking earlier on amdb huh. well i know like emmanuel lobeski shot new world and tree of life so at least okay yeah, I, did, I didn't check tree of life my bad but yeah yeah you're right i think he, i think he does have a different uh dp for every film uh, except for the last two of course but um yeah i mean it, it, it's a very different i mean certainly it, um, different approach, obviously, than Days of Heaven, which we'll get into in a second. But uh, I, I love what Badlands does because for me, it's almost like Norman Rockwell goes to hell. You know, it's like all those Norman <laughs> Rockwell pictures of traditional America, and you know, and, and instead, it's like you know, with, with little spatters of blood here and there. Indeed. But. 
Well, uh, Days of Heaven, 1978, the last time that Terrence Malick won the Con Film Festival. God, I'm so happy he won. I just, I can't believe it. It's great. Anyway, uh, Days of Heaven. This is Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, um, and Sam Shepard in a love triangle. Um, but, you know, plot is nothing when it comes to this movie. Really, atmosphere is everything. Um, Roger Ebert said he thinks this is one of the most beautiful films ever made, and I completely agree with him. I should mention Anne, I believe her name is Anne Milzer, who plays uh, Richard Geary's younger sister. I think she's fantastic in this movie. Um, I mean, I'll just let you and Ethan run with it. But I, I, I hate to say it, this is the one movie I didn't get to this Okay, week. well, I'll let Ethan run with it. The last thing I'll say about this movie, I mean, like, for me, the sequence, the set piece with the Locust is a brilliant movie all unto itself. Um, I love this film. <laughs> well, I should uh, mention that I wrote a 2,500-word essay on it for my film aesthetics class. Great, great. I, I haven't gotten the mark back yet. and Probably never <laughs> will, but I assume I did decent on it. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think, honestly, this is his best film and honestly one of the best films I've ever seen. And uh, the thing I, we had to talk about in the essay was we had to make uh, – we're talking about form and meaning – and we're also talking about we had to basically have an interpretation of the movie and explain how visually how the movie you know ex- uh, supports that interpretation. And I wrote about how all the scene or all the visuals in the movie represent the emotions of the characters. Like at the beginning, you know, Richard Gere, he's uh, you, you know, he's like shoveling the coal, whatever, and it's like all noisy and and it's really mucky and stuff. And of course, that's when he kills a guy. So and it's like it's showing that like you know technology is bad, and then when they get into nature and everything's beautiful, like nature is serene and everyone's you know days of heaven, they're enjoying themselves. But again, when they their differences come and they fight over the woman, the locusts come, and it's like it represents that and whatnot. So, and I also the thing I discussed because we talk about meaning and form, and this is the thing I think about all of Malick's films is that I think as they are like on paper, they're not really that deep, but through his formal qual- technique. The movies achieve meaning basically yeah. yeah so it's like just the the basic ideas in days of heaven like the biblical illusions and the ideas of these characters emotions that nature's good technology is bad is they're very simple ideas but through his visual representation they are so much grander yeah so that's basically what i wrote about and i also mentioned how the narration in this movie is i think that malik uses narration the way he uses music like it's not like he's giving exposition it's just it's another thing that adds the atmosphere of the movie and i know the little girl in the movie they they shot all the stuff and after they just asked the little girl to just improvise things like things she thought and that was the narration in the movie hmm. that's so cool yeah i think you're right it's 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 not only that i mean um and i'm not disagreeing with you about about his screenplays i mean i'm sure on paper it does seem you know very black and white or whatnot and sean penn even has commented on that um but it really is everything about his approach to the material, which uh, it's like he, in some cases, he finds what he's looking for in the editing room or he considers the choices that he has with what he has and what he's able to add to it. It's almost like a layering of cake, you know. It's like all these different layers that he's adding one one layer at a time after another after another um, until, like, you have probably the sketch of the story that he created. But, like, there's so many different cinematic approaches and there's so many different, you know, so many things to add. Um yeah, this movie is just—it's just a masterful example of cinema. And and I'll say this, and, and I feel stupid saying this, but but I'll I'll admit to this: this is, you know, this is probably my least favorite of his films. 
And and I realize how stupid that is because this is for me. This is a four star movie. This is one of the best films ever made. But this is the one film of Malick's I have not gone back and watched over and over and over again. I've only seen it like once or twice, and I love the film. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, for me, it's almost like Kubrick. Like it's for me, it's like a kind of different degrees of loving something. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is the one of his one films of hit one of the films he's done that I. I uh, I love the film and I admire the film, but um, it hasn't haunted me as much as the other ones. But th- this well, is your, if you, this is your if you were in my class, you would have had to watch it over and over to take notes and write an essay on it. So, did you have to watch it over and over? Like, did it? Did the teacher I, make you watch yeah, scenes I, over I, and over? I, well, I watched it in class and I watched it again just to take notes. And I'd seen the movie sure. before too, so I've seen it like three times. That's so. that's a great way to write a paper. I mean, especially if it's if it's on film, just to get like really deeply immersed in it very cool very cool um and anything else we should say about days of heaven before we move on i really uh i enjoy the opening credits quite a bit yeah me too me too this film it feels like a documentary at times you know i mean this i swear like i mean it feels like they they showed up there in a time machine and just kind of filmed everything as it as it's happening um his movies feel so lived in and you know that comes from, of course, of his approach. I mean, a great deal of what he does is scripted, but also there's everybody knows that that Malik loves to improvise and find moments and allow happy accidents to occur. Um, but yeah, like like from the opening credits on, like it just it feels like a movie that was made during its era. It really feels like it was made during its time, and not in a condescending black and white way, but like in a in a way that it, it just feels like it it captures it it captures the period. It just it it doesn't feel like we're looking at costumes or set pieces. It just it feels like the movie existed, um, and then somebody just happened to be there to to, to capture it all on film. And I, I like a recent Rat-a-Tat song. They sampled a bit of the narration in their song. The, I've been thinking about my future, you know? No, I didn't know they sampled it. That's cool. Be a mud doctor inspecting the earth. <laughs> Very cool. Well, following uh, Days, of, uh, Days of Heaven, there was a 20-year 20 20 absence of Terrence Malick off the film scene. During that time, um, and I should say for those of you listening who don't know who Malik is, or you know, or or just uh, learning about him as as you listen to this, um, Malik is he's reputed to be a recluse, which is probably not fair because you know we tend to you know when it comes to people like J.D. Salinger or you know someone like John Hughes, you know we tend to go well, you know they're they're you know kind of kind of quirky or an outsider or weird, and no, I mean Malik is completely entitled to his privacy and he's well, a genius. Well, it's like just because they wants. don't live in Hollywood, they're yeah. recluses. Exactly. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, like I heard Cormac McCarthy was talking. I read an interview with him. Says he doesn't hang out with other authors. He like hangs out with scientists. And I think it's maybe like Malik's like that. He probably hangs out with people because I think he teaches philosophy at like Columbia or something or University of Texas. Yeah. And yeah. so imagine he like hangs out with a lot of like academics and stuff. He's just not like a go to the premiere and drink a lot and snorting coke and what and schmozzing. You know. Yeah, he's not going on benders with Lindsay Lohan. Exactly. I mean, he's a, he was a his degree is in philosophy, and you're right. I mean, he's apparently a, a figure on the scene in in Austin, Texas, and apparently he's just this really cool guy. But yeah, he's you know he's just, he's, he's not, also one of the first one of the first members of the AFI classes, the first class of, over at the American Film Institute. It was uh, th- this is why I disappeared for a little bit. I had to go finish this book out. It was Terrence Malick, Tom Rickman, Paul Schrader, and David Lynch. Jeez. In that first class. Why doesn't somebody AFI, make that into a first movie? class. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. 
like screw x-men yeah i want to see like those guys like in a movie like the, their little misadventures together i mean that that's incredible what book is that dude this is oh good lord this is the book with the longest title that i own and possibly i've ever read the title is conversations with the great movie makers of hollywood's golden age at the american film institute uh, it's put together by George Stevens Jr. Wow. And it's, uh, but essentially, they'd, hit, they'd bring in directors and cinematographers and such to do talks with these soon-to-be directors, these directors in training or whatever. And, you know, Hitchcock is blunt in this thing. And and you've got Billy Wilder. I don't even remember who all you've got in here. Um, it's like 10 or 15 bucks off of Amazon. But let me just throw scroll through here. Who all's in here? Let's see. Harold Lloyd, uh, Fritz Lung, Frank Capra, Howard Hawks. Uh, George Folsey, George Stevens, Hitchcock. Who else we got? Billy Wilder, John Huston, Ray Bradbury, Elia Kazan, David Lean, Robert Wise, Gene Kelly. I mean, it's it's a very sorry. No Tarsem, not interested. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Took the words yeah. right out of my mouth. <laughs> there it is. All right. Well, after Days of Heaven, uh, there was there was some talk that he was going to do a movie about Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, and of course Jim Sheridan ended up making. Uh, great balls of fire so that, that was that um and i guess at one point i mean his name is attached to to dirty harry i don't know if he was offered dirty he harry wrote a treatment on it wrote a treatment of it which is so bizarre but yes i can't i i don't know how much of that or if any of that survived but it, any, it'd be the beauty of the cityscape for the whole movie <laughs> perhaps perhaps yeah i've i have no idea that, that that would be something to ask him if we ever had the privilege of meeting mr malik um but in any case um yeah, 1998, uh, up comes the Thin Red Line. I should say the first time I ever heard of Terrence Malick was an article in uh, Premier Magazine, and it was about a year before the Thin Red Line was finished, and there was uh, just a few photo photos that were in, in the magazine talking about the film coming out and what it was about. And basically the, the, the lead-in for the article was how Malick, along with Stanley Kubrick, is one of the greatest filmmakers ever made. He had been gone from the scene for years, and how what a, what a gift it is for filmgoers that at that point those two filmmakers were both making new movies, you know, and, and for the first time in, in forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, a very telling thing about that article is that it lists among the actors in the movie Lucas Haas, Gary Oldman, Bill Pullman, and Billy Bob Thornton being in the cast. Of course, they're nowhere to be seen in the film. In fact, Billy Bob Thornton was the, uh, originally the narrator for the Thin, thin Red Line. Hmm. He did all the narration, which of course t- uh, Malik dropped and had different actors and different people do the narration. And then, you know, before we talk about the film in general, we should mention that Adrian Brody was originally the star of the film. I mean, his character was first front, f- first, f- first and foremost front and center. I mean, it was supposed to be his film um and then essentially he got cut out of the film to the role that he has now and it became jim gaviezel's movie essentially jim gaviezel and sean penn's movie um the thin red line came out the fall of 1998 uh for the most part to great acclaim although there were some critics who never liked malik in the 70s didn't like him in the 90s and of course uh, audiences scratching their heads going this is not saving private ryan um <laughs> so the film was up for a, a number of academy awards didn't win a thing but it was up for best picture and best director um but uh, Saving Private Ryan overshadowed it in every way. Um, I think time has been kinder to it. Um, I think this is the best film of its year. Yeah. And let me see. What was the thing I saw? Um, I think during in his contract for The Thin Red Line, he said that no pictures could be published with him during that entire film. And it, that is the one picture of him we have uh, that's recent, the one where he's smiling and he's got his beard and his hat on. That was taken uh, as a, I don't know who took the picture or how it got out there, but yeah, that's like the one one recent picture we have of him and there was one paparazzi photo of him uh, giving a lecture recently in the last five years. We have that. but I was going to say maybe he didn't want photos of him because maybe he got like really fat and he was like really 
self-conscious about his image and he's like i don't know we yeah. got no photos no interviews and you know again like that's fine i'm i'm i, I got no problem with the malik mystique yeah no no not at all not at all I, there's rumor what was it like a five and a half hour cut of this movie five and a half hour yeah and you know again like all those actors like gary oldman bill pullman cut out of the film and and you know george clooney apparently had a sizable role which is which is he's in the film for i think about a minute now tops um yeah, and you know, and and uh, this is a film, obviously, that uh, that Malick reshaped multiple times and worked on a great deal in the editing room in, in all sorts of ways in terms of the sound, the structure, the form, in terms of how much the symbolism comes into play. And even though it is a film that's clearly been worked on a great deal, um, for one thing, I have no problem with that. I love his technique of, of finding the movie, essentially. Um, I wouldn't change a frame of this film. I, I, I love everything about it. I really do. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was. I, this is this is my favorite Malik movie. I should just jump to the chase. Okay, and Ethan, you said you think you thought that the narration wasn't used as well of an, as good of an effect in this movie. Well, not that it's bad in this. It's just I I think it it has it works just I think a little more in the in those other two because sure. I think it just because you have the characters kind of just from their perspective and this is a bit more like. Man is nature like a tree who is a leaf. <laughs> and it's like, I like it. I think it works. But it's a little more kind of philosophical, you know, kind of jargon. And I, and again, I, I was talking about form and meaning. And I think, again, in this, his, his basic message, his message is just, uh, you know, nature is good and war destroys it. But through his formal techniques, again, it, it feels much grander and greater than just that. So... And that includes having this narration and having all these characters and and whatnot. So, yeah, the narration has grown on me um, because in, it, at times it's we are actually hearing the thoughts of the characters that the camera's focusing on, and other times it's like this all-encompassing voice who does have this something of a of a you know a midwestern accent, and it's almost like he's the voice speaking for all of the characters. Um, it's very peculiar, but it, it has grown on me over time. Um, but the first time I saw this film, like a lot of audiences, I was going, well, who who is this talking right now? We're not entirely sure. Whereas in Days of Heaven and Badlands, yeah, it's, it's very clear who we're listening to. And it's it's more straightforward. And, and you're right, maybe in that sense it is stronger. Do you think that makes the film a little less accessible? I would argue that it does as much as I love it. I was going to say, another thing about this movie is compared to the first two that are like 90 minutes, and this is the full three hours that could be kind of a a difference too i think yeah yeah i think i think i mean inevitably the 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 comparison has to come up with saving private ryan and i think that if you want more of a traditional war action movie you go for saving private ryan if you want a much more philosophical look at war you go with thin red line for me thin red line has always felt more authentic yeah um, and, and I want to be very clear about this. I mean, I think Saving Private Ryan is a very good film. I do. I think it's very well acted and, you know, well directed for that matter. But I look at it and it just, it feels like a Hollywood war movie to me. It always has. Um, you know, we've had has, a ton of those too. We've had so many of those. And, and the characters, you know, like, like Edward Burns is a tough guy from, from New York and, you know, and, and, uh, Giovanni Ribisi is the cowardly one. Oh no, no, that's, um, Jeremy Davies. Um, yeah, like they all have like their certain roles, and then of course you know, and don't and, forget the Jewish one. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all the the cliches, <laughs> you know, and of course uh, what Barry Pepper I think is is the sniper guys. Like they they've all got their you know it's it's very familiar types you've seen in these kinds of movies before. And um, I was saying the last like the kind of last action scene always feels like Call of Duty. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. 
Well, just even well, my problem with the with the ending of the movie is the whole earn this. You know, I just thought that's. I think that message and what that implies feels completely wrong. And uh, well, know, I think the more it's more the bookends that are kind of the, eh. the bookends are a problem too. Yeah, especially when Matt Damon's face morphs into that old guy's face. Yeah, it just it feels it feels like it's trying to be a 1940s like you know this is you know the best times greatest days of our lives whatever that movie was called like it, it feels like the best times of our lives. It's trying really hard to be a very traditional movie, and and that's why the Thin Red Line I think trumps it in every way. Not only in terms of just being so much more ambitious, but the approach is much grander. And it's something we haven't seen before. Something think. we haven't seen, and like these young actors, they look like they don't look like movie stars playing these characters. They look like people who are thrown in into this. They look like they're 1940s people. They have these well, really so, interesting characters. Sorry, faces. someone I wanted to give a shout out to who you haven't mentioned yet is Elias Coteus in this film. Yeah. Yeah. He's brilliant, I think. He is brilliant. Yeah, it's it's one of the most complex roles in the whole thing. And uh you know, people watch the movie. I've I've seen like different reactions to his character, like oh, what a what a cowardly thing to do, or like what a noble thing to do. And instead of the character being painted black and white, like it's like all the characters, he's just kind of at face value. It's a fleshed out character. And I mean, I think he's an incredibly heroic character. And but that said, like the movie doesn't. You know, it's interesting that the film doesn't really paint uh, Nick Nolte as the villain. Like he, they really do establish that he's been passed over, he's been undermined and underlooked. Like he's he's somebody who's also felt like completely undervalued his whole life which is why this war is so important to him but the narration that Nick Nolte has and the backstory we briefly get for him really do give him more it's a more well-rounded character than you'd think um, because you know he's you know he's kind of the villain of the piece but he really isn't none, none of them are heroes or villains they're all just very recognizably human I think well speaking of Nick Nolte it's funny because I remember I, this movie infamous to, to me was always the movie that my dad and stepmother they'd always said oh the thin red line that is one of the worst films I've ever seen and I was like, oh, I just kind of curious. Oh, why is it it's like, oh, Nick Nolte was so bad in it? Really? Hmm. That's like their reasoning. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, they're entitled to that. I mean, it's 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 not a subtle performance, but I, I think I yeah, think it's like terrific. that's the reason why the movie is so bad. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously, I can't agree with that either, but. There's a, a member from the Premier, Premier Magazine article I was mentioning. The scene where he's uh, back to Elias Coteas' brilliant performance. The scene where Elias Coteas is on the phone telling him, you know, I will, I will not take my men into the in, oh, into this. Yeah. Well, like, what's wonderful about that is that Nick Nolte had done that scene, like his part of the part of the shot where it's him reacting and he, you know, takes off his helmet and smashes it against the ground. That's because Malik had him do that scene somewhere between 17 and 40 times. <gasps> And he was so pissed that Malik kept saying, again, again, again. And it wasn't until the last take that Nolte was visibly very, very upset and flustered and, and you know, red in the face and getting tired and, and pissed off. And that's what's in the movie. You know. Nice. Well, he d- he just he does that kind of stuff a lot, which is you know and we could talk about that to no end. I think I think Jim Caviezel was fantastic in this movie. This is mm-hmm. the first time, like mo- many people, first time I ever noticed him. And I thought, man, he's got there's something very magnetic about him it is something you know he just nails the real the detached uh, he has such a detached way of approaching the war but uh there's something very beautiful and uh and compassionate about his character that i've always loved i love sean penn in this movie it's one of my favorite penn performances because he underplays it so nicely mm-hmm. um i love all the scenes that he has with uh with caviezel um yeah, just just a movie full of moments. I love. This it. is one of the few um, World War II movies we're going to see that that we've seen that doesn't take place in Germany. Right, that's huge. Sure, sure. 
Go ahead, Ethan. Sorry. Uh, I would say the music in the movie, I think, is incredible. Like yes. the uh, the theme in it that's been used in like a hundred trailers. Right. Like when you if you like turn that that music up like super loud, it's like impossible not to weep while listening to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very powerful. Um, and I always think of that shot of the soldier. Um, I've never understood exactly what it is that he's caressing, but he's sitting in the rain by himself. I think we've I think we've talked about this, Ethan, where he's sitting. Uh, it's like after they've stormed the 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 Japanese camp and they've overtaken it, and there's a soldier who's sitting by himself in the rain and he's caressing something, and he throws it away, and then he holds himself and just starts weeping, and that's where the music comes in. And uh, yeah, I've never. It's one of those many moments I've I've never been able to pin down exactly what it means, but it's always moved me to no end. Um, like many scenes in this film, and we should mention something. I really appreciate you bringing this up, Ethan. The whole notion of uh, of nature, um, very black and white. Again, at least on the surface, the whole idea, like the opening scenes, are so beautiful of of Jim Caviezel and the other soldier who are you know committing a wall um, on that island. Yeah, yeah on the island. Oh. Yeah, they're just they're just in Eden. I mean, they're 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 in heaven. This is this is bliss. And then once you see the military boat come into view, it's like. What a bastardization to see this in the middle of this Eden, to see this man. It's like, uh uh-oh. Exactly. Yeah, and and the New World has a scene just like that too. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, this is very much about uh, man or or mankind, humankind being immersed in nature and uh, what a violation it is to destroy it uh, and and also, you know, just – and I think also – but you know what? I I can't talk about the Tree of Life. God. (laughs) (laughs) I almost had something to offer, but I'll, I'll say it this way. Um, this is a film, like other Malick films, um, that although they are about very dark periods of human human life, whether it be war or other things, um, I do think this is a very life-affirming movie. I think this is a movie about how valuable life is and about how even when you're close to death, you do see how gorgeous life is, and you do see these things uh, that remind you that life is beautiful and we should be in awe of this world, whether you believe in God or not. You you know, And I think that's how Malick views the world and views life himself. I mean, you really do see a guy who just is in love with... You know, a spider making a web, and and you know the the wheat blowing in the wind, and you know, I and I love that about his films. This is a guy who just like he goes, wow, look how beautiful the world is. So. Totally. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Anything you wanted to add about the thin red line, Ethan? Still haven't gotten the Criterion. Pissed about that. Ooh, that's it's a, a gorgeous Criterion. That's what I watched this morning. Yeah, gotta, gotta get it, man. Gotta get it. And uh, the, the extras are fantastic. There's interviews with Dash Mihawk, you know, who plays, who has a very key role in it. Um, uh, the the soldier who has his gut shot out, and he's got that wrenching scene with with Sean Penn. Sean Penn's interviewed. Um, Elias Coteas is interviewed, and Thomas Jane is interviewed, which is interesting because Jane only has one scene in the film. But uh, yeah, anyway, great, great stuff. And finally, to the New World. Uh, New World came out in 2005. This is another film. Uh, <laughs> this is another film that Malik shot, but then like worked on for quite some time because he's a. I don't know if I, I would say perfectionist, but I think he, you know, when he finds the movie, he finds it, and that's that's the version we see. Um, Interestingly enough, whereas Adrian Brody is very much, you know, cut out of of the Thin Red Line, um, Ben Chaplin is in the New World for about a second. You see Ben Chaplin for a second. He's on the boat that's going, that's taking John Smith into the the world of the Naturals, um, and you see Ben Chaplin on the boat for just a second. But he, that's it. Huh. Yeah. 
Okay. And he's in the end credits. And of course, Noah Taylor, brilliant actor. He uh, he has a supporting role in the film, but it's like, you know, I mean, it's it's Colin Farrell's movie, essentially. And apparently Christian Bale and Farrell and Christopher Plummer really joked with uh, with Malik during the making of the film. And I, I read about this in Entertainment Weekly where they were saying, like, don't cut us out of the movie. Like, Brody, man, like, we want to be in this movie. Um, <laughs> Dang. Uh, let's see. Um this is a film that I I show in my Hollywood history class every year, and I'm going to show it this fall. I always do because it's 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 a movie that most people haven't seen or like they didn't see it or didn't want to see it. It didn't get the best of reviews from people. It didn't get good reviews. It didn't help that some idiot film critics said it the best romantic historical love story since Braveheart, and another one compared it to Titanic. Two, no. movie, two movies. Really? This, two movies. This film is nothing nothing like um so I said, That's it's funny stupid. you bring that up though because i remember um my friend who he's studying he's at a film class back here we were at separate film schools or whatever but he, he he was texting me and telling me like yeah we've got this textbook and on the cover they have like this like colin farrell caveman movie <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> I remember seeing it uh, the night it opened up in Colorado Springs, and it was a packed theater. And I think at the, the first, the first, yeah, the first hour mark, half the audience had left. I mean, I mean, it was a mass walkout. Really? And yet, I saw it a second time at the Discount Theater. Again, packed audience. I mean, I, I've had a hard time finding just one seat for myself, and they dug it. The whole way. Oh, I mean, I, th- I think like after I think after like the initial reviews and the initial thing kind of wore off. I think people were more aware of what it was exactly, and that it wasn't going to be like Last of the Mohicans. Which well, is what the well, well like, like when you went to that theater on opening night and you saw it packed out, you're like, uh oh, here we go. I was honestly, I was worried because um, because I didn't experience that with the Thin Red Line, but I know a lot of people who did who did see it. And like this sucks. Clooney's only in it for a minute. You know, I like I, you know, like there's a real real you know plus like. Private Ryan was so much better, you know. When I saw somewhere and I, the audience was full, I was like, "Oh god, oh boy, yeah. this is gonna be something." <laughs> only only two people walked out, but still. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's not too bad. Yeah. Um, Corianka Kilcher. I can't say enough good things about her performance as Pocahontas, and I love yes. that they never say her by name. Which, let's face it, until can, her name changes. Right until her name changes. Right, because I mean, to me, like that could be so silly. Like it's it. Pocahontas is here to see you, John Smith. Um, I love her performance. Uh, this is this is everything I love about Malick's films. Uh, she just seems to be very much in the moment. Doesn't seem to be even aware that they're making a movie. Um, the scenes where John Smith is in the midst of the naturals, the Native Americans, but they're called the naturals in the film, which I love. Um, all those scenes where he's kind of like falling in love with her, and we're falling in love with her too because she's lovely, and she's such a contrast to everyone else in the movie. Um, there's a scene in the film where Christian Bale is just walking around. Like, he doesn't even have any motivation. He's just walking around. And according to Bale, um, he said, like, like Malik just told him to walk, and the camera was going to capture whatever happened. And Bale said he had so much fun because after a while, you know, the, the, the takes went on and on and on. He started to, like, walk right into the camera and, like, really go out of his way to, like, drive the, everybody crazy because, like, he would walk off the set and the camera would still follow him and people would be, like, scrambling to get the, get the chairs and the mics <laughs> and stuff out of the way. Um, but uh, this is a film I think it, it, it does kind of illuminate his technique and his themes because there is a lot of Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line in this movie, the whole notion of man being immersed in nature and man uh, violently retaliating against nature and nature being pure and good and man you know, bringing his corruption and his own baggage to it. Uh, 
And I, I, you, you watch the director's cut. I watched the extended the three hour cut. Yeah, yeah. which I, I, you know, and then the film was about I think two fifty in theaters. Um, and I do like the director's cut a little bit better. It just it feels a little fuller. There, uh, the, for me, the biggest difference is the scene where um, all the elders of uh, of the Jamestown settlement are sitting in a room, and it's uh, it, well, like in a little tent, and it's John Smith and uh, no, it's Christian Bale and Christopher Plummer, and that's it's that whole scene of talking about like, well, how does she figure into things when because, he wants to marry her? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that scene wasn't in the film, and I appreciate that being back because I feel like that's a kind of an important important moment because it does feel very uh it feels like a political move that that uh that the ralph john ralph character the the christian bale character marries pocahontas i think that scene kind of illuminates that he really is in love with her and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to use her as a, as a chess piece um yeah i i love this film love it you know um, i said a few weeks ago that i thought crash was the best film of 2005 much to ethan's horror <sighs> and much to i'm sure many of our listeners horror and i and i think i've changed my mind i think the new world is the best picture of 2005 um i, I, I think I, Oh, go ahead, Ethan. No, I was just asked, complimenting Barry for his uh, <laughs> his wise choice. I changed my mind. Crash is still on my top five of the year, but it's not number one anymore. <laughs> oh, is it number two? No. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it might have even gone as low as number three because Match Point came out that year. So anyway. One of the things. Anyway. Very, oh, go ahead, Ethan. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to say I'm, I'm quite a big fan of this movie. I uh, – I'd only I'd watched I, mean, I saw it when it came out in DVD and I didn't like it and it was weird because I I had seen Thin Red Line and Badlands at that point and I liked both of them so I was like why don't I like this more and it was like one of the few times where you know the critics of Malik are like nothing happens it's boring yeah. right and like this is I don't know it, like I just did feel that when I watched it the first time I was like why am I I don't get this but then I I watched the extended cut last summer. And I found myself just enjoying it so, so, so much more. And I, I don't know, know quite what it was. Maybe it was just I was watching it by myself. The first time I was watching it with other people. This time I just, I don't know, it just it grabbed me more. It's kind of hard to describe. Yeah, I think it does get better with subsequent viewings. Um, you mentioned the narration, and I think, uh, you know, and again, I love The New World, but I, I think it is worth noting that uh, the narration, I think, is hot and cold in this movie, and it's because of Colin Farrell's accent. I think some of it's unintelligible. Okay, I, I understood most of it, but okay. I, I think what really underscored the film, especially when you're talking about, you know, he's in this Eden and everything, how he talks about how there is no malice, there is no anger, there is they have no idea of the concept of forgiveness because mm-hmm. everyone just is. And then when you get to the point where you, where the actual battles start happening, it just really underscores how much things have changed. And it's not the Indians who've necessarily changed, or the, the naturals, sorry, but it's it's that, that outside influence that came in that really changed things. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. I liked the voiceover work. Yeah. Um, I liked the, the, the fact that the film took its time, like those scenes where, where you know you have Pocahontas and John Smith just laying in the field together. It's because a, a relationship isn't creative out of five-second montages. Right. It actually takes the time to actually let you see this relationship begin to grow. And Well, I think if she were a blue cat person and they rid a dragon together, it would have been just a little more... Uh... <laughs> wow. It, it does say something that, you know, I think most people would look at it and go, like, oh, what a, what a one-note relationship. This is a very simple time. Mm-hmm. And you know, in this in a time of like marriages were arranged or people fell you know fell in love or didn't fall in love or just married out of necessity, um, you do understand how something really passionate and intense could form just the two, these these two people just walking around in this beautiful setting. Yeah, I think initially when when the the when when the film's story leaves off past when the Disney movie ends, I'll put it that way. 
you're like, wow. My first reaction was, what a dick. <laughs> you know, and then it's then, then it's realizing you know how he's not the man he used to be, how he feels like he's not good enough, right? How he feels like he she's going to be better off without him. That it takes on more nuance. And you you reminded me. We'll go back to that because I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, uh, Leonard Malton in his review of this movie says this movie is like watching paint dry, but what beautiful paint. To which I say, what a dick. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, <laughs> wow. back to what you were saying. No, no, no. That's that, that's just it, it. Really, it went someplace that I never learned about in history books or anything like that. And then when you have you know Christian Bale, it was really weird seeing the first building of the, of Wayne Manor in Virginia. But yeah. beyond that, you know, it was. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, is that Christian Bale? Holy crap! The way Pocahontas is dressed, and forgive me, I'm just calling Pocahontas. I think she's listed as I think it's the princess in yeah. the credits. I think um, I'll just call that the way the princess is dressed when she meets royalty. In you know, and yeah, yeah. Like, I, I remember seeing that, thinking that's. Kind of an odd choice, but apparently that's taken directly from from a portrait of Pocahontas. Hmm. So, like, apparently that's that's exactly how she looked, and you know, it's Malick, very meticulous in terms of recreating history. And I just uh, really yeah. liked this movie. Yeah, part of the problem was I watched it last, started watching it last night when I was tired, and I really loved the movie, but it's just such a soothing film. I fell asleep about halfway through. Yeah, and I don't blame you, no, because it is a film. No, you're right. It's it's very calm. It's very soft, and it really does try to like immerse the audience in nature too. I mean, this is a director who's really trying to make you feel like you are there in every sense of the word. I mean, it is like cinematic time travel. Um, I love Farrell's performance in this movie. He can be an actor who is put in the wrong role, or you know, or a role like Daredevil where it's just silly. Um, but I think there is a lot of soul to him. And I think in the right role, you do see it. You don't see it in Alexander, but I do think you see it in this movie. I think his his very soulful eyes, I think you do see the hurt and the pain and the conflict that's going on. I think this is definitely one of his best films. I think when, when he was made the president of the colony, that was a very telling part of the film because it's very clear he really has no desire to have this job. They're like, it's going to be you. And he's like... Okay, I yeah. guess. All right. Let's, so when, and when it gets taken away from him, he's not exactly heartbroken about it. Something I've read a lot of, uh, to kind of comment on that scene, something I've read a lot of actors who've worked with Malik say is that he likes to shoot a scene and then shoot the silent movie version of it. Hmm. And sometimes that's what remains. And that's why you have like the actors giving performances without any dialogue, you know, kind of a kabuki style of acting, which, uh, which is like, who does that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things that when you, when you hear someone say, you know, this guy's made five films counting Tree of Life since 1973 when Badlands came out, mm-hmm. people are like, well, he can't be that good. And no, he, he's that good. That's why. Yeah, and I understand people saying, well, his films are too slow. They, they, they don't have enough focus. And there's just a lot of rambling and meandering. And, and for me, this is, I say, this is the style is the substance. This is just a different way of approaching it. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much symbolism in these films. Well, uh, what, to me, I see him as like the American Tarkovsky. Sure. Like, sure. like I imagine if like, uh, and that's just the thing, because it's like people who only watch like American movies and only watch like blockbusters are saying this, where like, if Tarkovsky's films were shown to them, they'd be, oh, they'd be saying, oh, stupid. I know, well, S- Sylvester Stallone, I guess. But uh. <laughs> If Sylvester Stallone didn't like Tarkovsky's films, which he probably does not. Um, there's so much symbolism in these films. Uh, even this morning, watching The Thin Red Line, there's a scene at the very beginning of the film, I forgot he was even there, and I've seen this film so many times. There's a scene where Jim Caviezel is remembering when his mother died, and there's a little girl in the room, and she's outstretching her hands to the mother in the bed, and then he embraces the little girl. It's like, the way the girl is dressed and the way she's acting, it's clearly not the sister. But like, there's, 
it's, it's almost like there's a spiritual element. And certainly the last scene of the New World where all of a sudden a Native American, a natural, runs up and, and leaves the room after after the spirit has passed. It won't ruin the ending. Um, and then runs out into the to the field. It's like there's so much symbolism in these films. And, and it's so casual. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to comment about another film, but I can't. But there's there's so much. We should have put this episode off a few weeks, shouldn't we? It's okay. No, you know, and, and I don't want to wait till we shouldn't wait till June 10th. We should get people excited about the Tree of Life. We should. I can say that. Um, but no, there's a there, there's something going on in his films, and it's like I understand people resisting his films, but I swear, like if people just calm the frick down, turn their cell phones off, turn the lights off, get yourself comfortable, and just allow a film to speak to you, and just allow a film to move you, and just like surrender to the freaking film. Um, it'll take you on a journey. And I know some people feel that way about Kubrick or they go like, well, I, you know, I can't get into Kubrick's movies or 2001 is too boring or, or Full Metal Jack is too off-putting. Um, but I think Kubrick's best movies are the same way. It's like you gotta, you just got to surrender to it. You can't just, just take in the imagery, take in the texture of it. You know, it's, it's like eating a dessert. You eat it slowly. Well, something I wanted to mention about Malik, uh, this is an interesting trivia bit, but you know what his favorite movie of the last 10 years is? No. Zoolander. <laughs> wow that makes me want to watch zoolander right now just to see like what is it what is it that i missed well it's that- apparently um well seth rogan you know who's he's directed by david gordon green david gordon green is friends with terrence malick right because he uh, produced undertow and yeah. he yeah he told them barely like as terrence malick like watches like zoolander like once a month and he can like quote the entire movie <laughs> that's awesome and that's something I put on my Facebook page. Uh, I mean, Brad Pitt, like, I appreciate the stories that Brad Pitt told about Malik that apparently he laughs for a lot and really easily, and he's somebody who loves his life. He's not like some, he's not like some creepy, you know, like, I don't know how people imagine him, like, like, like one of those, you know, stranger danger posters where he's got like a top hat and a, and a large trench coat. I mean, he's apparently he's like this really fun, funny, jovial guy. He just has no interest in being in the spotlight. And who could blame him, you know? As, you know, especially after what happened to Von Trier's, who could blame him, <laughs> you know? Well, I, I, I just, seeing Malik's films, you can't really talk about Malik's films like if you were interviewing him the same way you're going to interview, you know, someone about Tropic Thunder or about Zoolander or something like that. You know, his films are just so much deeper. You get a lot, a lot of the, a lot of interviews, frankly, are very on the surface. And I'm sure he's just like, you know, I just don't want to put myself through that. I think you could talk yeah. about philosophy and how the film made you feel if you were to talk to him about him as opposed to... Nah, you know, I just no? ask him when the sequel's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's why he wouldn't do it because there would be a lot of those kinds of, 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 of interviews. So yeah. I don't blame him. Yeah, and it tends to get very snarky and rude at con. I mean, I, I think the only other place where the interviews can be that rude would probably be Hall H at Comic Con. <laughs> some of those questions that some of the fanboys throw, are like, "Wow, that is like," because um, not to bunny trail, but like I remember when Schwarzenegger came out and announced he was doing Terminator Three, you know, and he came up there like, "I told you I'll be back, haha!" You know, he sat down. Okay, first question, first question that came up, you know, this is right after he announced he was doing T Three. So, but he knows. So, uh, some young guy said, um, "Is this gonna suck like Batman and Robin?" That was the, <laughs> the first freaking question. <laughs> And, you know, a con is much more, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you got a lot of, you know, there's serious cinephiles who are, you know, running the show and asking the questions. But, like, those questions do get very, it can be very hostile at those. At well, those on the uh, Antichrist criterion, there's, like, a special feature about it at Cannes. Oh, and they show a bit that. of the press conference where someone asks, I want you to explain why you did this, Lars. Ah, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a terrible question. 
because I didn't like that movie. But like, I mean, I, 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 you know, I would never say he should. You should not make movies like that. He should make whatever he wants. And there is art in that movie. There's a lot of stuff in that movie, but there is art in that movie. <laughs> there is. I'll, I will admit to that. So I think it's fair to say he's an underrated filmmaker. I think the Tree of Life will change that. I think I don't know if it'll necessarily like bring him up a few notches, um, but I think this movie will bring more awareness, especially because you know, like uh, the new la- the new world definitely missed the whole like the current generation. I mean, that movie just missed a lot of people in general, and you know, Thin Red Line. You know, like it was up for all his Oscars, but it, you know, it's it's more of a cult film than anything. But I think the Tree of Life, uh, just because of its star power and because how it's going to divide everybody, um, you're going to be on one end or the other. Yes, and I will say this not as a spoiler, but just honestly, um, I think it's his, his least accessible film for okay. mainstream audiences, and that has nothing to do with how I feel about the film, which is obviously not an unfavorable review, but. Uh, it is his least accessible film, and I think uh, it's going to challenge the heck out of everybody. But I think those who love it are going to feel like they've never seen anything like it in a theater before. Okay. So, all right. Any closing thoughts we want to bring up about Terrence Malick before we move on? I will say that the assassination of Jesse James and David Gordon Green's films have kind of filled that nice little void of when there isn't a new Malick film to have. I agree. Um, I don't know if I'd say the same about Your Highness, but I agree. <laughs> I don't know if you love Zoolander <laughs> and you love uh, Minotaur penis so there you go yeah clearly no I, I appreciate you bringing those up Ethan because I, I agree um, it's not that like, I don't want every movie to be made in this style but I think there is something to be said about contemplation and remembering that film is a visual art and that when you make films extraordinarily beautiful and you do have context and theme and all those artsy things behind it and it's actually about something other than an explosion or a fire um, I think film can be like poetry, you know, and, I, and poetry that goes back to like not only European filmmaking, but but the way film was when it first started. I mean, some of Chaplin's best films are full of imagery that like will stay with you for the rest of your life. And Malick is like that. Well, that would be why my two favorite films of his are The Great Dictator and City Lights. I mean, they both have such amazing and yeah, astounding imagery brilliant. in them. Because they get these big ideas and they're expressed visually in such incredible ways. And I think like the best filmmakers do that. And I think like, I don't care if it's Spielberg or Scorsese or Bergman. I mean, I think their best films are like that. They've got the visual grandeur and beauty and ambition to back up these really big things they're wrestling with. Indeed. All right. Malik rocks. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, if, if, you're, if you're all adventurous, I think he's a very rewarding director to, to wait do you think on set do you think they call him terry apparently they do i know i've, I've never heard anybody work with them not call him terry i've heard okay. like this morning sean penn was calling him terry brad pitt is calling him terry so i assume it's terry malik but it's the same thing as like you know robert de niro if you meet robert de niro you're like it's hey Mr. bobby de niro. hey yeah, bobby yeah. hey right. if he I says i was at his restaurant last summer and all the posters for his movies were in the basement where the bathroom was i thought that was kind of weird <laughs> Well, I guess he didn't want he didn't want to make it about the man. He wanted to make it about the food. Was it was it good? It was okay. I think I had a steak. <laughs> because he went on um, inside the actor studio with James Lipton, and one of the questions from one of the audience members was, "Hey, just curious, like, how come at your restaurant the fish uh, the the shrimps have their heads on? Like, how come their heads are on the shrimp?" He's like, "I don't know about that. I'm gonna look into that." <laughs> I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of an odd. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll we'll discuss what we're talking about next week after we record, and it'll be a surprise. So, yeah. But um, to wrap the show up, shall we uh, talk about what's hitting theaters this coming weekend? This coming weekend, um, you know, the first one's a great movie. I don't know if anybody really needed the sequel, but Kung Fu Panda Two, 
I still haven't seen the first one. Oh, you'll love it, Dave. It's great. It's really good. I mean, it's. I think it's one of the best examples of its kind. Uh, Hangover Part Two. The the original director and all the gang, including Ken Long, are back. Um, I don't know how to feel about this one. Of course, it's minus Liam Neeson or Mel Gibson or Bill Clinton, as we were promised. So, uh, yeah, seeing the trailer, I'm just like. DVD, okay. It looks more of the same, but yeah, you know, we'll see. And then in limited release, the aforementioned, uh, wow, Palm Dior best winner at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, starring Sean Penn, Brad Pitt, and Jessica Chastain. And you can talk about it when again? June June the 10th. 10th. Yeah, okay. and, I, and I won't be here for the next episode, so I think the the episode after the next, I'll be able to blab about it. That will and you guys be, should be able to yeah, see it. Yeah, that should then. be just, uh, no, you won't be able to yet. <laughs> Son of a gun. <laughs> I, I might not be able to see it until like July 8th. Ah, because we get that it in would... Denver July the 10th. July or June? Uh, June, June. I'm sorry, June the 10th. June the 10th, okay. yeah. If it's if it's like at the at the Greenwood, I'm going. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Biggest screen possible, man. Biggest screen well, possible. Well, I'm thinking the comfy chairs. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it is, it's a, it, it's not that, it's only 136 minutes, so it's not okay. like, you know, his other films. Ethan, you don't think you're going to get it till July, maybe? I, well, if, I'm, if I'm back in Montreal by late june maybe but I, I i heard it was like nationwide july 8th so oh, okay. i'm just worried about that huh. yeah. okay of course you're gonna get uh transformers dark of the moon uh june was it june 30th now they're gonna release it two days earlier best possible substitute <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well that shia labeouf narration <laughs> i wow I want to go back to what Dave was talking about. Like, you know, uh, it was it was such a weird thing f- to like start the morning off with the Tree of Life, and then like that evening we were seeing Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, you know, yeah, I can come up with so many analogies for that, but not kind of speaks for itself. It's like you know, I I remember like even like, do I even want to see Pirates? But I had to. I had a deadline, so yeah, yeah. There are critics who actually skipped the Pirates screenings because they saw Tree of Life. They're like, yeah. there's no way I'm doing that. Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, so it's like going to uh, to like this holy church, and then that evening going to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, it's not the same thing. <laughs> I don't know. Chuck E. Cheese has pizza, but not good pizza. And they got those yeah, animatronics, and you know, and those those video games are like five years old. They've got like I I beat the Simpsons arcade game at a Chuck E. Cheese once. So that's cool. That's I'll cool. always have that. There you go. There you go. Wow. All right, what's coming out on DVD next week? <laughs> DVD True Blood season three. Uh, Nicholas Cage and Amber Heard um, drive angry, not in 3D. Although I think the Blu-ray, there's a 3D Blu-ray, I think. Of course, because there's money to be made. Um, Ethan was big on this film. I need to see this. Uh, beautiful with Javier Bardem. No, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't say I was big on it. I appreciated aspects of it, but... <laughs> you know what I'm thinking? You know, you're right, Ethan. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm remembering how you compared it to Hereafter. Oh yeah. In comparison to that. In yeah, comparison, you made it sound like a masterpiece. So okay, all right. So there you go. That's what I was thinking of. Um, speaking of directors, I love Ridley Scott's Legend, the Ultimate Edition. Um, is, is this a re-release? Hasn't this already been it's, out? I don't think it's been on Blu-ray. So it's the Ultimate oh, okay. Edition on Blu-ray, and it's just okay. a regular DVD. So okay. Well, I mean, this this is the extended cut of the version, which I think is a much better movie. It has musical numbers. It's much more expansive and wild. Like it, it feels like it could be like the Lord of the Rings for the '80s. I mean, it it is a big 
spectacular fantasy movie with a lot of texture, a lot of ambition. It's much better than the, than the version that came out in 86. Tim Curry rocks it as Darkness, no question. Even if you don't like Tom Cruise or Mia Sara, Tim Curry as Darkness is something to see. He's awesome in this movie. Um, finally, on Blu-ray, Once Upon a Time in the West, the third of the Man With No Name trilogy. This is the one with Henry Ford, I believe, as the, as the villain. And uh, wow, great film. All right. Spaghetti cool. Western, Clint Eastwood, Sergio Argonis, <laughs> Ennio Morricone doing the music. This is good stuff. Right on. Cool. Okay. So uh, I guess that'll wrap it up. If you want to shoot us an email, by all means do. You can email us at uh, Barry, Ethan, or Dave, or podcast, all at ScreenGeeks.com. Um, I don't have the phone number up in front of me. You hear us talk about it every week. It's all good. I think it's on the site even. So <laughs> we whatever. Think. We yeah. think. We hope. Yeah. It's all good. episodes. We still don't know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. That, but that, that lends itself to the fun. I I don't know. Can you believe okay. it's been 150 episodes, Dave? Because you've because wow. I've missed a few of these, but you've done 150 episodes plus of the other site. Yeah, yeah. So, so is that 175? Maybe no. We were we we were we did 49 episodes over there. Oh my gosh! That I think I was there for all but like two or three of them. Wow. So yeah, yeah, fun times. Been doing this a lot. We have, but it's fun. Uh, yes, it is. So, yes, it is. Yes. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Barry. This is Trey. At least it's not a flushing toilet again.